Hello, my guest today is Professor Alan Trounson from Monash University, whom I've always thought of as Mr. Frozen Embryo, but these days he's better known as Mr. Stem Cell. Welcome. Hi, Robin. The news is always quite fascinating. Stem cells seem to be progressing in a, a remarkable fashion. And as we speak this week, it's suggested that the embryo can lose a cell, and from that cell, without destroying the embryo itself, you can, in fact, develop all the cells that that you need. How would you assess this sort of breakthrough? Would you call it a breakthrough? Yeah, I would. Um, I mean, I, my, my initial response to all this was to go back and review one of my own papers for which I did exactly the same experiment. Uh, it was a time when we weren't trying to make an embryonic stem cell line out of that, but we were trying to grow the cells in large enough numbers so we could do genetic diagnosis. But essentially the same experiment. And we could grow lots and lots of cells uh, from those single cells taken from the embryo. So I actually, um, uh, when I had wind of it, I thought, well, on the basis of my own experiments, and uh, perhaps I ought to go for, uh, to the NH and MRC licensing committee uh, and ask if we can take single cells off some of our frozen embryos to demonstrate that you could do this uh, as a proof of concept uh, here. Well, of course, if you're not destroying the embryo, mm. there's no issue, surely. Uh, that's right. Uh, many, of the, many of the people who would have concern about destruction of an embryo would, uh, would feel that this was uh, a reasonable thing to do. I think the problem is that many people go back to uh, not accepting the development of human embryos for IVF purposes. So therefore, they shouldn't exist, and therefore you shouldn't take a cell off them. You, you won't be able to help those people because the, the origins of their concern are, are well behind uh, the request of what we're, what we're doing and, and what, what the intention is. But if you actually accept uh, that IVF is a reality and that uh, we have embryos in the laboratory and that there are... They're there anyway, yeah. Yeah, and there are two or three million babies worldwide. This is not going to turn back on itself and disappear. Then is it reasonable to ask a, a patient, a couple, if you can take one or two cells from their eight-cell embryo and make an embryonic stem cell line? I don't know what the answer would be to that question. Um, is it tricky, by the way, to take that cell no. out? No. Well, so why is there such a fuss about the publication in the journal Nature now? Well, I think it's because um, many of us have thought, and I put myself amongst all of those people, even though maybe I had experimental evidence to the contrary, uh, that if you took a cell out, you actually couldn't make an embryonic stem cell. And what I think they've shown is that you can. So as distinct from my experiment where I just grew cells, they've been able to show that they've got an embryonic stem cell line. But when it comes down to uh, what's the reality, if I go and then ask an IVF patient, uh, do you mind if I take a couple of cells from your embryo? When their only interest at that time is to have a child, have a baby, I'm not sure whether they would agree. Now, you wouldn't have to do this many times, surely, because uh, you're developing cell lines, and if you got a few of these cells from consenting donors, surely you'd have enough, really, for Australia's purposes for a long time? Well, I think if we, can get, if we could get the patients to, to donate those uh, single cells or cells from an embryo, eight-cell embryo, uh, I, I think it'd be great, and, and we would be able to do what you could do. I think the, the question is that I'm... 
opposing at the moment is that I'm unsure whether the patients will readily agree to that. Perhaps they will, perhaps they won't. But we'll have to wait and see. Indeed. Of course, it's still important to get cells from various sources, because some people suggest, well, if you can get them from developed adult cells, why bother with the embryo source? But of course, is it not the case that each treatment, each therapy, each system requires different sorts of stem cells, otherwise it doesn't suit? Well, I think that's true, because we don't have an adult cell that, we, that is so plastic that it can go form every other cell. We have not been able to make a bone marrow cell that will form every other cell of the body at least not, not in, any, in, in any way which is guaranteed to be functional and, and is able to repair uh, tissue which has been either destroyed or is, is subject to some disease. So um, the answer is clearly uh, adult stem cells will always be the first try because it's much better, it's much easier to go and ask the patient for their cells to repair them. I mean, that's not that's not challenging in a way because you're using the patient's own cells to maybe help them. But where you cannot do that and you need another type of cell, then you either use a, a cord blood cell from the, from the, from the placenta, the, the umbilical cord blood. That could be useful but still not demonstrated to be as good as an embryonic stem cell. Or you may go into the amnion, you know, when you take samples for prenatal diagnosis, you get a whole lot of cells there. Again, these seem even more plastic or more useful than, than even the umbilical cord. But then we're sort of progressing, if you see all the way back to an embryonic stem cell, which is perhaps, if we can demonstrate it, is the gold standard, it will be the one cell that can if properly directed and with safety, uh, produce the cells that we need for a very broad variety of problems. So you're suggesting that people who say, you, you can make do with adult cells, why do you need embryo cells, that they're wrong in their assumption? I think they are at this stage uh, because, I mean, I work more with adult stem cells than embryonic stem cells. So what we're learning from one cell type uh, to the other, that the, the, the messages that I, I, I can get from an embryonic stem cell, which is moves through a phase of differentiation, finally become an adult stem cell and then go on, is all about understanding what, what it is that locks those cells into forming their tissues eventually. So my view is that we will use both types of cells, clearly bone marrow cells are very effective for for, for many disorders of the blood and, and immune problems as well. But I don't think at this stage that they're going to fix Parkinson's disease. I don't think they're going to make a pancreatic islet cell which will repair diabetes. And if they do, well, that's fantastic. And it'll probably be on the basis of information we've derived from embryonic stem cells. And we'll all rejoice. You know, I, I don't have a problem with that at all. You mentioned diabetes, you mentioned Parkinson's disease, and of course, uh, lots of people have mentioned Alzheimer's and so on. The promise is extensive, but how far off is it? Look, they're very, they're very distant at this point in time. Distant because five years to me is distant. There's so much happening now. I'd say two things. One, if you've got an orphan indication, that is that there's no other treatment available. For example, cystic fibrosis in young people. 
There is no treatment for cystic fibrosis clinically. If a, if a, if a child is becoming uh, suffocating uh, with infection in their lungs, as they do, the only option is a lung transplant. Now, if we're able to grow upper airway cells from embryonic stem cells, and we believe that you only need to replace one in 10 of those airway cells, I think the clinicians will, will, will seek permission inside uh, the regulatory systems uh, to try that, because what is the alternative if you can't get a lung transplant? is to watch your child suffocate and Yes, die. they die in their teens and their 20s, yeah. early 30s. Yeah. So if you take those orphan conditions, Robin, I think they're going to progress more quickly than, than you know, if, if there's experimental evidence, they're going to progress more quickly than most people will be prepared to uh, um, suggest at the moment. Mm. Now, even given that, there's still a lot of experimental work to do to to, in these orphan conditions. But when you talk about um, diabetes, uh, we're a long way off. But progress, I, I happen to know from unpublished work, progress is very fast here as well. So again, the, the problem with diabetes type 1, which affects young people, and is a really very serious disease for, for, for young people, is that it's an autoimmune disease. So there's not much point in putting in new uh, islet cells if the body's going to go off and kill them anyway because it's an autoimmune disease. So I would have thought diabetes is well and truly more than five, perhaps more than 10 years. I, I think Parkinson's disease is of that ilk. Alzheimer's disease, I don't think it's going to be necessarily repaired by embryonic stem cells or any adult stem cell. But I think we have to wait and see, but it, it, it doesn't look obvious. The other important uh, issue that people don't seem to recognise, and it comes back to our current uh, problems with, with getting the law changed here in, here in Australia, is we would very much, as scientists, like, like to make embryonic stem cells from patients with cancers or Alzheimer's disease or Parkinson's, or motor neuron disease, because we don't know what the cause of those diseases are. And if we have the pristine cells that we can drive into, say, the neurons uh, uh, from an Alzheimer's patient, and we can show that those aggregating proteins kill those nerves in the laboratory, and how it might be happening, and see it earlier than we see the patient who's really gone down into the final condition, We'll learn things, number one, about whether it's genetic, whether it's epigenetic, whether it's environmental, and what are the, what are the, what are the conditions that predispose that, that condition to uh, being a phenotype, that being <coughs> expressed. <coughs> but why cancer? Why cancer patients? Cancer's really interesting because in many of the cancers, again, we don't know why it occurs. It's probably because it's a complex disease in many situations, not a single gene. And what we would like to do in, say, glioblastoma is take those cells, bring them back into, the, into an embryonic stem cells, drive them for... We know that they'll become pristine, non-cancerous cells when we do that, but then we want to watch what happens in terms of which genes are turning on, overexpressing, and predisposing that tissue to being cancer. These are 
it doesn't matter what it is. It's people interested in muscular dystrophy, people interested in neurodegeneration, people interested in all forms of mm. science would love to have those cell lines. And they're going to have them other places in the world. It's a long way, actually, from this university at the University of Sydney, uh, where you once were, looking after sheep. I mean, you were an ag boy, weren't you? True. Farming background? Yes. Uh, so how come you ended up uh, in a sort of quasi-medical role? Uh, where was the jump? Um, I think it's a slide more than anything. Slide, <laughs> right. I mean, if, you, if you look at the set, set of sequences, uh, I wanted to be a veterinarian. I went to a, an agricultural high school. I mean, I was just sort of hell-bent on farming or veterinary science. And I got sidetracked into wool technology which became wool and pastoral sciences because at that time Australia was riding high on a sheep's back. And so I, I entered an area which, where I became a generalist in the sense I was a physiologist and a geneticist. And I en ended up interested in sheep breeding and the, and the origins of things like multiple births and, mm. and you know, how the embryo functions. Uh, it took me to Sydney University to do a PhD out of Chirilda in the Makaki Memorial Institute, 100,000 acres, 60,000 sheep, Bliss. just two scientists. Bliss. When you think of the problems you have of, of getting a few mice for experiments now, when we had 60,000 sheep, to, it's astonishing. Anyway, from there I went to Cambridge to continue that. But in the interim, I'd met Carl Wood. He'd come to Chirildry to look at what we were doing in sheep. And he was... He was trying to engineer these plastic tubes in women. He'd been working with the eminent scientists of the CSIRO, poking little tiny holes, micron diameter, in plastic tubes to link uh, the ovary with the womb. A total disaster, really. It never did work, it never has worked. But he suddenly got interested in, in IVF. And he, 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 was, he said, do you think it would work in... in in, uh, in women, and I thought, if you just turn the sheep into an upright position, you know, is there enough physiology there to suggest that perhaps, <laughs> you know, the broad principles apply? You're going to be in the trouble <laughs> saying things like that. But, uh, well, <laughs> I you, see what you mean. But, but, he, but what you do is you take the information that's generated in an animal species and you apply it to the human. And that's the reason why we were so successful when I came back from Cambridge, we applied all the principles that had been developed in animal yeah. breeding back into the human, and it worked, it worked very, very well. I remember the sensation when you developed those techniques for freezing embryos. Yeah. Keep, you know, the pictures, the cartoons and the newspaper, you opening the fridge and taking out, a, instead of some ice cubes, you know, a, a yeah. great big tray of... Did, did that put you off? Did, did that sudden fame make you... Nervous or what? No, it didn't. Um, I remember a cartoon of a, of a truckload of sperm hitting a truckload of eggs in those days and everyone trying to kill the things that were sort of uniting on the <laughs> roadway. I mean, in a sense, I, I, I remain having a, pers a perspective. I was as interested in the research uh, and genuinely interested in the research that, that underpin those, those observations my work has always been applied, so I've, you know, I've understand that what I do hopefully will be applied. But I was much more interested in the science and it kept taking me that way. And that's the reason why I developed into stem cells, because I was sure. still asking basic questions. 
I think if I'd, um, if I'd have taken some of the, the options of, of, of becoming an IVF scientist or moving to the United States and to develop a lab there in a more commercial sector, I might have had a lot more money, but I wouldn't have, mm. I wouldn't have had the, the, the wonders of science that I've, I've been exposed to. And so, no, it didn't take me out of my place. Those debates that we had over IVF and then we subsequently had... They were quite furious too, cells. weren't they? They were. Yeah. And, and as an agricultural graduate, one wondered at times what all this was about. So I had to... I really had to spend time with people like Peter Singer... Um, the philosopher, yes. Yeah, yeah. Theologians from the things, Vatican yes. University. People who, who were interested in discussing those things because it wasn't a natural... It wasn't a natural subject that an agricultural graduate would sure. sort of be, uh, be well informed on. And now over 25 years later, how many IVF kids are there on Earth? Do you know? Yeah, somewhere between two and three million and closer to three million. Uh, it's very difficult to keep count now because nearly every country in the world has, has an IVF clinic. So uh, IVF has been a tremendous success. Millions of young people who are having kids of their own now and they're taking their exams and getting their university degrees. Um, you must feel pretty chuffed about that. But when you come to stem cells and the brawls that you've had to endure, does that get you down? Uh, you know, <laughs> there were times when... Uh, when I rather wished I I'd stayed in the laboratory. But, but there's, also, there's also the need to recognise that if you're going to work in these areas that you have to explain yourself. Um, some of us are not as good at explaining ourselves as others uh, and some of us don't always get it right. And, and some of my predictions haven't been right, nor, nor should they have been in science because you know, the next set of observations kind of overturned the ones before. That's the nature of science. But um, look, I, I actually enjoyed some of that because, you know, because I, I felt that uh, if I was given a reasonable forum, that I, that I felt confident enough to debate my side adequately. The problem is, often you're not given a reasonable forum. It's a, it's a sort of 10 second bite here and there, or somebody's making that criticism in another place and you can't reply. That, that is not, as we do science. And there's goodwill. OK, there's competition yeah. in science, but there's goodwill. Yeah. Do you sometimes infer that there is not goodwill from the people who antagonise you? Uh, that oh, sure. A... No, no, that's, that's for certain. Yeah. That there's not, there's, uh, there are some people who, who would prefer that I, what did they say, stayed farming or kept to the animal side of life. What I do you mean, think drives them, do you think? In many cases, it's, it's, a, it's a background, a, a philosophical background that is often religious. Um, not entirely, though, because uh, in the early IVF debates, the feminists, uh, a sec segment of feminism was very critical. Um, there was also um, uh, conservationists who felt that, uh, you know, what we were putting forward was uh, unreasonable, and, and even elements of, say, the Green parties in... Uh, in Europe wouldn't be supportive of some of the things that we're proposing. So, so the, I think it's just, it's a natural, there's a natural disagreement because, you know, for whatever we are, we'll have an attitude based on either our upbringing or, or what we've been exposed to. If that happens to be religious, we're likely to have that bent. 
uh, if, it's, if it's likely to be a very strong uh, conservation uh, view, well, you know, that will have maybe come from, from our own background. I think that's the, the wonder of, of, of being human, that you can sure. actually can disagree. What about you, Alan? Are you religious? No, I'm not religious. Uh, I kind of lost it somewhere along the line. Uh, I did, uh, as, a, as an Anglican, I, uh, I had all the right upbringing at Sunday school and so on, but I, I, something isn't right when, when there are so many kids living in poverty and so much misery. You know, if there was a, a hand there that, that, that really was, uh, you know, uh, able to do something, well, I think they should have done it. Yes. And so the trouble is that I can't necessarily get hold of the, the wisdom of, uh, uh, of the teachings when I've got that problem. The beneficent God has been on long service leave for a, rather a long time. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the way <laughs> I see it. Sure. So how much are you torn by having to promise so much and yet in a realistic scientific world you know that that's a long time coming? It's very unscientific to go wandering off into the future. In fact, it's usually bad karma because you can actually bend your, research, your results to go off and try and prove that and you can then tend to go down a track which, in fact, you don't have sound experimental evidence to do. So predetermining outcomes is, is, is a very bad thing as a scientist. What you've got to do is put a hypothesis and then justify it by experimental data. So it's naturally... Uh, uncomfortable to do it, very uncomfortable. But, you know, if we're doing these things, if, we, if we're using human embryos to make embryonic stem cells, we've got to actually tell people why we want to do that. Is it just our curiosity? That's not good enough, I don't think, to use those embryos. It's just it's curiosity, we want to put it in a textbook or in a paper. We actually want to do this because we think people will benefit, people who currently have not very much option in their, current, in their treatments, might benefit long term by either the cell therapies that arise from it, or if we're able to make these disease-specific stem cells, we're likely to find new drugs, which themselves may help these conditions quite dramatically. So I, I think it's the problem of explaining the relevance, is then take, everybody then asks me, everybody, when is it going to happen? When's it going to happen, yeah. And, and, and I say, look, I can't see beyond five years. So let me say, I think it's going to be 10 years plus. Hmm. Do you remember the last time uh, we were, well, I think it was the last time we were together, in fact, meeting Christopher Reeve, Superman, who has since died. What was your feeling on that day when you were in the same room as Superman, lying there, you know, <laughs> unable to move? Well I, well, I was absolutely astonished by his intellectual um, capacity and his and his ability to to understand. Uh, and he's obviously well enough read or reported informed, to that yeah. he was very well informed, Robert. And and I remember his comment to me uh, when I was I was uh, just among a few scientists with him, is that. He would much prefer that I was in the laboratory than out at these conferences. Yes, <laughs> because, getting on with it. Yeah, what he wanted was some hope that, that there would be a therapy. He understood that he may not be a recipient of that therapy in the time frame, but 
the fact that we were serious about trying to do something, raised his spirit immeasurably. And, and I think, you know, those kind of comments make you want to go back to the lab, make you want to sort of spend the time um, with your young scientists to sort of push on very hard. I thought he's a magnificent man. What about the next, uh, talking about the future, the next step in fertility? Do you think we've gone as far as we can? No, uh, I, I think we can revert the infertility, you know, by making uh, eggs and sperm from embryonic stem cells. So if you've got total sterility and you're 30 or 40 years of age, we can take some cells from your mouth, make an embryonic stem cell line, turn it into sperm, ah, maybe eggs for Robin would work too, <laughs> and transfer those into, yes. into, your, into your gonads and, and they will probably functional, be functional. I think uh, in, this, is, this is a lot longer than most other applications, but, but 20 years' time, hey, I wouldn't mind having a read of some of the journals to, to see whether that's being uh, applied then. Uh, we have a mutual friend called uh, Robert Winston, Lord Winston, who called you one of the most fertile people in the Southern Hemisphere. you just become a daddy again. Uh, uh, how, how's that going? I, I, I don't blame myself at all for this. And so this is, this is, this is akin to uh, the shoe, shoemaker's children have no shoes and the, and the baker has no bread on the table. The reproductive biologist still hasn't worked it out. So yes, no, I've had... I've had Four children, lovely, four lovely children over four decades across two millennia, two centuries and two millennia. Uh, yeah, I'm probably getting close to a record there. You're a busy man. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Alan Trance. <laughs> Thanks, Robin.